to Judges chapter 4. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. I mean, Judges. Did I say Judges? Yeah, Joshua, Judges. Yeah, Judges. Uh, Chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1 of Judges, and this is God's Word. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hegoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots and had oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give them into your hand. Barak said to her, if you go, will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zaanaim, which is near Kedesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Herosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, up! For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabe and the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. 
So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, Tammy and I go downtown from time to time, and uh, when we do, uh, if we go the, the one way, we see that funky building that's empty. You know what I'm talking about? That, that fancy, kind of cool downtown condo thing that they built on, you know, by Riverside Drive there, Tom Lee Park across the street. And uh, it's empty because they built this thing, and apparently the foundation's goofed up, and it's settling, and it's unsafe, and they can't even let anybody in it. You know what, what building I'm talking about? You don't? Okay, well... It, well, it's down there. It's brand new. I mean, I remember we went to like a downtown tour of the homes and look at all the cool things downtown a few years ago. And we went in that place and saw all the grand plans and everything. But the building's like condemned. I think they're only keeping it up to have something on the skyline. The only way to fix that thing is to tear it down and rethink it and redo it. The only way to fix it is to break it first. And that's uh, our big idea for today. It, it is this. God may just love you enough to break things. It seems like God sometimes, to fix things, has to break things. So, um, to our first uh, sermon point, the need for deliverance. Uh, if you would look at verse 1, you'll see that it sets a rather ominous tone. The people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. After Ehud died, and you see we're dropped right into this kind of like, you know, thick situation. Not only have the people apparently done something wrong, they've sinned against Yahweh, but apparently they've done it again and again and again. And their behavior is hooked to an event. You know what the event is? The event is that this dude, Ehud, died. Now, we have to ask, who is Ehud? Why is that a big deal? Ehud died and their behavior changed. Well, look back just a little bit to chapter 3, verse 15. It says, The people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud. All right, so they've cried out to the Lord for some reason. God delivers them, and when their deliverer dies, they revert to sinful behavior. Why do they need a uh, deliverer in the first place? Well, let's see. In chapter, 12, in chapter 3, verse 12, look at that. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against them because they'd done evil. So you see, more evil. Wow. Well, why did they commit that evil? Well, it says in verse 11 of that same chapter, at the end of it, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Why did they need Othniel in the first place? Well, you back up to chapter 3, verse 7, and it says the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Do you get that there's kind of a cycle going on here. And by the way, when you read the book of Judges and it says the people cried out to the Lord, that does not mean they cried out in repentance. It means they cried out like, ah, we're so miserable. We've been oppressed miserably, cruelly, as it says in our passage. And so basically what happens is this cycle of the Judges, as it's called, is the people revert to their sinful behavior, and God goes, you know what? You want your sinful behavior? Go ahead. I'll just take my restraining hand off of you and let the kings do what they will with you. And then the people are sorely oppressed. Now, the whole thing starts in chapter 2, verse 11. Look at it, if you would. It says, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and it says they served the Baals. 
and they abandoned the Lord. You see, that's a very potent word. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them up out of Egypt. It goes on to say they went after other gods from among the people. So they abandoned God. They're chasing after pagan gods. It goes on to say in the middle of verse 12 that they bowed down to them. They provoked the Lord. Verse 13 again, they abandoned the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. Now, this Baal and Ashtoreth, who, what, what are these things? Well, they're pagan idols of the land of Canaan. And basically, they're different than us. Uh, they don't uh, eagerly await the Whole Foods opening up on Poplar Avenue so we can go in there and buy some fresh produce and some delicious meat. That was, this was an agricultural community. And uh, rain was, like, super important. And if it didn't come, then crops didn't grow. And so their, their fertility, um, uh, rain, uh, production of the land, very important to these people. And so they invent these gods, Baal and Ashtoreth, and basically they're like fertility gods. Baal's the dude, and Ashtoreth is the lady. And the way they would worship, it was awful pagan stuff. They would go, well, we really need some rain, so let's all go up on top of the mountain and have sex. Illicit sex, let's kind of, you know, get the, get the juices flowing with these two gods and hopefully they'll put some fertility on the earth there. So kind of gross. Oh, and by the way, there were human sacrifices and, uh, you know, uh, just uh, terrible stuff, terrible stuff, bad pagan stuff. Uh, and by the way, when you read the Old Testament, you know, Asherah poles, if you've ever read and you read about the land was littered with Asherah poles, and you wonder what that is. Nobody really knows what the Asherah pole is. It's linked to the goddess Ashtoreth here. But it is believed that an Asherah pole was a male, a tree carving thing on the countryside. Now, can you imagine walking with your grandchild What's that, Grandpa? Well, that's an Asherah pole. I mean, that's pagan worship right there. And so this is what the Israelites are going after. So in the context of our particular story, the people had rebelled against God's rule over them again and again and again. And as soon as any kind of restraints were lifted from them, God supplies a deliverer in his compassion. He sees their misery. He delivers them. As soon as the deliverer dies, they go, eh, we're just going to go back to our ways. And it's a cycle. And I don't know about you, but um, that, that uh, is, is very penetrating to me uh, because outward restraints don't equal righteousness. And I am in a job where I have all kinds of outward restraints. I'm a clergyman. That means I have to drive politely. Um, you know, I talk about it with Joey Solopec, uh, the bowtie weatherman. You know the bowtie weatherman? Hi. Oh, you on the back row? No, that's George. Okay. Uh, anyway, you know, hi, I'm Joey Zillipick, and uh, he's got to be polite all the time. Or it turns into, yeah, that bow tie weatherman was a real jerk at uh, Bosco's. He only left a 14% tip. So he's got he's to be on his game all the time because he's Joey Zillipick. Well, I have that too. I'm a clergy guy. I can't flip you off on the road uh, and lose my temper in the, in the mall, you know. I, I, have to, I have outward restraints. But that doesn't necessarily equal righteousness. And it, and, and it betrays the heart when the outward restraints are removed and the behavior changes. That's a, that's a good application for you and me. Um, what if, ladies and gentlemen, in keeping with this uh, point, what if you were designed by a God who cares about you and designed you to function a certain way? You know, folks, um, the, the, uh, the um, reduction of their behavior 
the Israelite people's behavior is at the very end of the book of Judges. I'm just going to read it to you. It's this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, I'm bored and slightly annoyed when I hear preachers go, well, that sounds a lot like our culture. You know, every time they preach a sermon, well, this sounds a lot like the the, uh, Corinthian people are a lot like our culture. Okay, well, yeah, okay. But does this sound like our culture? I mean, this is this is constitutional. <laughs> this is this is how we think and live. We want everyone just to leave us alone, and as long as it doesn't harm us, uh, we 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 want just want to do what's right in our own eyes. And we're in a culture that where postmodernity is kicked in in hyperdrive. We're past that, and that's why um, that's why celebrity. Resonates so hard with our our youth because they go, yeah, I just want to do what's right in my own eyes, and I don't want to, anybody to tell me anything. And by the way, um, that that sounds like people that have flexibility and mobility and resources too, doesn't it? You go, look, I just want to do what's right in my own eyes, just hands off. Well, the scriptures don't allow that. Um, yeah, I got an illustration for you, and I I, I told you this a few years ago, but. Um, when the church I grew up in, uh, they used to use those old industrial pink hockey pucks in the men's toilets. You know what I'm talking about? Ladies, you don't know what I'm talking about, but it's in the urinals, uh, it's a very like gym class looking thing. They're really pink and they're deodorant things. And I mean, if you can imagine, I mean, a thousand guys have gone to the bathroom on that. Gross. And, uh, one Sunday, you know, in between services, we were all, you know, kind of out there in the lobby and people have coffee, ha, 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 you know, talking and stuff. And this little three-and-a-half-year-old walks out with one of these things. He's like, you know, and everybody was like, it was like it was uranium. People were, it was awful. And, you know, his attitude is, he's like, what? I'm just doing what's right in my own eyes. What if that's you? Hey, God, I'm just going to operate. Uh, you know, I got this. I'll look, when, when my life collapses, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll hit you up. But right now, co-pilot seat, not pilot seat, co-pilot seat. I got this. I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. What if you are like a three-and-a-half-year-old with a pink hockey puck in your hand and you're the last one to know? That brings us to our next point, the uh, source of deliverance. Uh, let's go back to our passage here, verse 2, um, Judges 4, verse 2. Uh, the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, uh, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera. All right, so you got that? The Lord goes, you want your sin? You can have your sin. I'm just going to go ahead. You, you want to be left alone? I'll leave you alone. We'll see what happens. An army takes him over. So a king takes him over, an evil king. And he's got a commander of his army named Jabin. And Jabin's a tough guy. He's got a big army. He's got uh, 900 chariots. And uh, the people of Israel are cruelly oppressed for 20 years. Now, that doesn't mean that their air conditioning was shut off. That means that mom and dad and kids are separated. And families are ripped apart. And the dudes don't have jobs and they're not providing for their families. I mean, it's cruel oppression for 20 years. Now, that'll make people cry out all right. And so what God does is he intervenes, and he sends in a particular woman. Verse 4, it says, Now Deborah, 
a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And you see what she's doing there in verse 5. She would sit under the palm of Deborah. She had a place of legal jurisdiction between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. The people of Israel would come to her for judgment. And so she is ruling Israel. She's like Margaret Thatcher. She's ruling Israel. When people have a, a, a legal conflict, they come to her. She makes a determination, and that's it. She judges Israel. She leads them. She is a leader. But there's something else about her that's really important. She is also, it says, a prophetess. Now, a prophet or a prophetess was a unique office in this time because it was the voice of the Lord. It was the word of the Lord in the midst of the people. And that's why Barak says what he does. So you got it? You got this King Jabin, and he's, you got this King Hazer. He's got Jabin, his commander of his army. So you got commander of the army, Jabin, the bad guy. You got Deborah judging Israel and Barak, her military guy. All right, so you got the two leaders, you got the two military commanders. And Barak says, okay, uh, uh, Deborah, if you feel like, if the Lord's told you it's time to uh, beat these guys and the Lord's going to deliver us, okay. But he says this, she says, yeah, I'll draw out Sisera. And so God says, I'll draw out Sisera and so on. Look at verse eight though. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go with you. But if you will not go with me, I will not go with you. Now, why is he saying that? It's not because he's a widow baby, and it's not because she's a ninja. It's because she's a prophetess. She has the word of the Lord. Barak knew that uh, she was doing the talking. When she says, uh, yeah, I, I will draw out Cicero, the army of Jamin's army, and so on, she's, she's delivering the word of the Lord. He knows this, and he's saying, unless the word of the Lord goes with us, I ain't going. And she says, oh, the word of the Lord's going to go with you. I'm going with you. Now, flip in your Bible to the left, if you would, to Exodus 33. Exodus 33. And uh, let's go to verse 13. Exodus 33, 13. This is, um, <laughs> this is before the Lord passes his glory in front of Moses, right? Uh, uh, Exodus um, 33, 13. Uh, Moses says to God, he says, uh, Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Man, what an intercessor, hey? Look at verse 14. God says, My presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. The reason that matters to you and the lesson we can take from our passage today is that God is where his word is. Now, listen, is God omnipresent? Yes. He made a creation, and he's not absent from his creation. If he's absent from any place in his creation, then he's hardly a God. He's everywhere present, it's true. But the principle remains, where God is, his word is. Where God's word is, that's where he is. What is Jesus called? The Word with a capital W. By the way, when you see Word with a capital W, it's not the Bible. It's Jesus, 
personified the Word. Where God's Word is, He is. And that's why it's so important to understand that all ministry is a ministry of the Word. All ministry is a ministry and application of God's Word to the soul. All right, next point. Um, The accuracy of deliverance. Notice, ladies and gentlemen, uh, one of the things that blew the mind of your kids uh, on this trip is, you know, I'm, I'm reading this passage and they're like, multisyllabic words and kings and places and stuff, and it, you, you read it through the first time, and maybe you were experiencing that too, going, what in the world is all this crazy Old Testament-y looking stuff? And, uh, well, let me make a sense for you. Um, notice how verse 10 could flow right into verse 12. You know, it's an historical narrative. It's telling a story, right? Verse 10 could go right to verse 12. Uh, Barak, that's a military commander of Deborah, calls out Zebulun and Naphtali, those are two tribes, to Kedesh, and 10,000 men go up, and so does Deborah. So you got Barak, you got the leader of the army. Verse 12, Sisera, he's a military guy from the other side. He was told that Barak uh, had gone up from Mount Tabor. He calls out his chariots and blah, blah, blah. So you got uh, leader of the good army, gathering his people, and then leader of the bad army, gathering his people. And the flow could go right through without even stopping at verse 11. But at verse 11, all of a sudden you get this, beep, 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 beep. we interrupt this broadcast to tell you that Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hoad, the father of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far as away as the Okans a and which is near Kedesh. And you're like, what in the heck? What is that? It's like a push notification on your phone, CNN. Oh, Heber the Kenite, blah, blah, what? It's some historical doodad. What's it doing in there? It's not even a part of the story. Yet. Where it picks up is this, this weird little factoid introduced about somebody and their family relations and all that stuff is a very essential element coming up, which is, look at verse uh, 12 and following. Let's just kind of blow through the story. Uh, Sisera, he gathers his army and so on. They fight. Uh, it goes on, and in verse uh, 15, it says, the Lord routed Sisera. That means uh, the good guy beat the bad guy's army, all his chariots, all his army by the edge of the sword. And it says that the, they all fled. They all got killed. Everybody fell by the sword. Not a man was left. And in verse 17, it says, but... One dude gets away, and he's the leader. And you know how it is. You know, you watch, like, Gladiator or whatever, and the king's kind of up on the hill on his horse, all dressed up, you know, not really doing anything, going, oh, charge, or whatever. And, you know, Sisera's up there going, oh, gosh, my army's getting beat super bad. Oh, gosh, no, look at they're No, they're being killed. All of them are being killed. We're obviously losing, and they're kind of racing up the hill toward me, and I'm going to high-step it. So Sisera goes, I, I'm going to get the heck out of here. So he does, and he runs. It says in verse 17, he fled away on foot, and all of a sudden, it makes sense. He goes near this tent of Jael, this woman. She's the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. So that little production note previously is to let us know there was friendliness between the bad king and this one particular family. And he happens to go past this tent to this one particular family. I mean, this is a wonderful point of preaching for God's sovereignty, isn't it? I mean, he flees, and the tent he happens to run by in this nomadic community is Heber the Kenite's tent. And this woman named Jael, she she sees him, and she's like, Oh, Commander, I know that our families are buddy-buddy, so come on into the tent. 
And uh, he comes on in. And she says, uh, don't be afraid, my Lord. Come on in. She covers him with, up with a rug. You know why? Not because he was chilly. She's hiding him. So he hides under this rug, and he says, stand by the door. If anybody asks for me, say, I'm not here. Okay. And uh, he says, hey, can I have some water? She says, ah, better than that. Here's some milk. And he goes to sleep. And then it says, she went softly to him and drove a tent peg in his temple. So he's under the rug going, I can't believe I got away. Uh, he's like Saddam Hussein hiding in a hole, you know. He's like, uh, at least I'm safe here. And tent peg, and I'm not talking about a plastic Walmart one. I'm like, like Abraham Lincoln vampire killer, kind of a tent peg. And bam, threw his temple into the ground, dead. Now, why does this matter to your life, you might wonder? How could this possibly make a difference to you in uh, Germantown, Tennessee? Well, you remember that Deborah was a prophetess, right? She has the word of the Lord, and she makes a very distinct prophecy in our story. Remember, she says um, in verse 9, she says, yeah, I'll go with you. I got the word of the Lord. I'm the judge of Israel. I'll go with you. Nevertheless, Barak, the road on which you're going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And we read that and we think, oh, Deborah's going to win. Now, guess what? There's another woman. So you got, you got the judge of Israel, Deborah. You got Barak, her military commander, who's no dummy. He's a tough guy. He's in a, and by the way, he writes the song with her in chapter 5, Deborah and Barak's song. But you got this other woman, Jael. And guess what? The prophecy comes true. One girl takes him out. And what this is supposed to teach us is that um, we're supposed to see a little bit of sarcasm here. It's not recorded in the Bible just for purposes of literature, but it's to try to teach our souls something about the way God delivers. Um, let's move to our last point. The demolition of deliverance. I like that, the demolition of deliverance. You'll notice that even though Deborah the prophetess gets top billing in the story, along with Barak. It's really a story about the use of two women, God's use of two women. You got Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, and Deborah. And uh, as I said, I think this was either two or three years ago at Gumbo, I cited this and talked about it up here, um, that this is often mishandled and mispreached and uh, criticized. And, so, and it's real easy to do. It's kind of fun to do. So if you're a preacher, you get up there and you go, oh, I got a good one. What's your sermon about, honey? Well, uh, I'm going to talk about how we shouldn't take matters into our own hands and how Jael, she should have trusted the Lord on this. Uh, but, you know, she, she, she killed this guy and she should have waited on the Lord. And that's going to be my sermon for today, that we should wait on the Lord. Don't hammer spikes in people's heads. <laughs> well, that's a criticism of the passage, and I think it's a ridiculous criticism. If only there were some way we could know the Lord's approval or disapproval of this whole scene. I mean, I just wish the scriptures could tell us. If we just focused on God's word for a second, maybe we could see what God, maybe we could see if this was in keeping with God's will, if uh, somehow it fit into his plan, and if somehow God blessed the wartime proceedings, if he governs his flawed people. I just wish there was some way to know. Oh, verse 23. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Israel. 
That sound pretty good? Oh, by the way, his prophetess foresaw this with Jael, and the prophecy was fulfilled. That also seems like a good point, if you're giving it a careful view. Oh, there's also another commentary. Uh, Flip ahead to uh, chapter 5. So now the battle's over, and they write a celebratory song. And uh, Deborah and Barak are like, hot dog, let's get out the guitar and the uh, mandolin, and uh, let's write a song. And they do. And it, now it's highly stylized. Now it's a poem. It's not historical narrative. It's a poem. And look at verse 12. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, break out in song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Uh, then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. All right, so they're writing a victory song. What are they putting in this victory song? You know, they're celebrating God's deliverance. You know, they say at the beginning of the song, bless the Lord, celebration of God's deliverance. Here's part of the song, verse 24 of chapter 5. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked for water, she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She Oh, she sent her hand to the tent peg. Hand, go to the tent peg. <laughs> and her right hand to the workman's mallet. Other hand, workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. That's a song. And it's not the Bible going, well, we're kind of ashamed that she hammered his head like that. They're celebrating it. By the way, in case you think it's kind of severe, the sarcasm continues. And I mean, this is deeply sarcastic. Verse 28. Out of the window she peered. Who? The mother of Sisera, the the leader of the bad army, the spike head. Out of the window, Sisera's mother wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? She's got a maiden. Her wisest princess answers. Uh, she, indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? I know why he's taken such a long time. He won. <laughs> oh, it goes on to say, a womb or two for every man. Is that not revolting? In other words, Sisera's mother is going, oh, my, you know, my commander boy. He won, and now they're just raping all the women. Oh, but I'll probably get some dyed materials and some embroidered stuff and some jewelry for my neck. Don't feel too bad for Sisera or his mom. To punctuate who's doing what, verse 31. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. But your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might, and then it's exclamation point, and the land had rest for 40 years. Now, application for you. God gave them a decisive deliverance from the army he gave his people over to. They rejected him. He goes, all right, you want to reject me? You can reject me. It's your prerogative. But I'm going to take my hands off, 
and let you experience what you experience. Then they cry out in misery. He can't stand it anymore. He feels their helplessness, and he delivers them. And our problem is, and their problem is, they don't feel their helplessness. They feel like things are going pretty good. They feel like they're in control. They feel like they got the wheel. And it isn't until until they reject God and he says, all right, you feel like you're in control? Have control. See how that goes. And then they go, oh, no. When it all caves in and they're cruelly oppressed, they cry out. Our problem is, again, we don't feel helpless. You know, I, I got a really cool illustration that I annoyed Tammy with uh, all week long as we were by ourselves. We, we had this little, we had a rental Hyundai. And, uh, you know, it's one up from the worst. You know, we just wanted something with a trunk. And, um, and you know, we, we rented from Enterprise. They were like, uh, do you want a little, uh, you want to go up a couple grades for a little bit more power on those mountains? And I was like, no, because I don't care about your car. Uh, and let me tell you, we were going up, I mean, 4,000 feet and then down 4,000 feet. And, you know, when, like when we, we went up to Pikes Peak, and, I mean, like I said, the altitude's like, she's scared, and I, I can barely concentrate on the, keeping on the road. Um, but, you know, when you go down Pikes Peak, there's a mandatory stop. And you know what they do? They check the temperature of your brakes. And we had to open our hood and shut our car off and wait for 20 minutes, along with a big, long line of other people. The guy's like, uh, that's about 360 degrees. Uh, it's not safe. So you've got to let your brakes cool off. And I'm tell- as you're sitting there, you're like, wow. I mean, you could smell everybody's brakes. The whole air, it wasn't pot smoke, it was brakes. <laughs> and then as you're uh, driving down these big hills, you know, it's like you go over the pass, it's like you go up 3,800 feet, and then you go down 3,800 feet. That does fascinating things to the human body, by the way. And, uh, but on, as you're going down, there are all these signs. And you think it's a joke at first, but it's not a joke. It says, truckers, don't be fooled. That's the sign. It's a big yellow, like, you know, official road sign. Truckers, don't be fooled. Six and a half percent grade for the next eight miles. And you're like, ha, that's funny. Truckers don't be fooled. That's pretty funny. And then, uh, then you come to another sign. It's like, I'm, I'm paraphrasing now, but it's like, no, seriously. <laughs> truckers, don't be fooled. And, and oh, th- this one, literally, it says this. Uh, truckers, you're not there yet. Still two miles to go. And now it's got flashing lights on it. And then you see signs for runaway truck ramp, and it's not like, runaway truck ramp. It's like, bear, I mean, way the heck up this mountain. And they have other signs that say, for cars, if you've lost your brakes, don't take the exit. Because <laughs> you're going to go run into a Walmart. Keep going. There's a runaway ramp down the road. But they've got all these warning signs. And, you know, these truckers, you know, any, who drives a stick shift? Well, you know, downshifting is a, is a wonderful tool and kind of a joy, and it makes you feel like you're in a James Bond movie, you know? Um, but if you're going too fast, your, you know, opportunity to downshift has ended. <laughs> and that's the problem with the truckers is they're like, they're like, I got this, I got this. And then they, all of a sudden they realize, no, gravity is winning, and I can't go low if I want to, and that the thing runs away from them. And my point is, that's how we live. That's how we tend to live. We tend to live feeling invincible. And God's word is saying, don't be fooled. Love wisdom. 
love God's law, follow his precepts. We go, I got this. I'm living my life. And all of a sudden, we're rolling down the hill and it gets away from us. And we realize that we don't have the control that we thought we had. Until something proves to our souls that we don't have it. And so I close with uh, this application, and it's simply our main point. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, hear this. God may just love you enough to break things. In a sense, that's an encouragement. But in a greater sense, it's a warning. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that um, we see grace and truth and application for our life in the strangest places. You uh, are quite aware um, what you're communicating in what you've put in the Bible, and uh, we thank you for that, Lord. And um, I want to confess my own um, strivings and feelings like I have control and that I can run things I can't. I need you. We need you, Lord. We need you. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would um, invigorate us, grip us, and uh, that you'll pour out the grace that we would love your law and your good and pleasing and perfect will. Help us, Lord. Don't let us be fooled. Um, Draw us to yourself in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, you guys.